Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. I hope you're very well on a Tuesday. Carol Walker in the hot seat yesterday, so thank you for Carol for letting me go to the circus. That's what I did on my day off. Anyway, uh, back to the far more serious business of politics. Coming up on today's episode, Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Hammer wants the golden couple of Scottish independents. They've had a, quite the tiff falling out. Uh, and uh, what impact will all that have on the prospect of Scottish independence? We'll speak to the two authors of a new book which lifts the lid on their extraordinary feud. That's coming up, uh, coming up in the big thing in just a moment. But first, it's today's columnist panel. No David Wanovich today is off having a, uh, another spray tan, I think, because the weather's been so bad this summer. But we've still got the Times' Daniel Finkelstein and journalist Emma Wolfe. Let's start with uh, this phrase. In fact, it's the very first words on the very f- on the top story on the Times today. The special relationship was under strain last night. So after those Pentagon leaks claimed that the US had uh, kept open the gate at Kabul Airport despite knowing there was a high risk of attack uh, in order to assist the British evacuation, rather than sort of focus on the specifics, I just wonder about this phrase, the special relationship, Danny. Should we stop using it? If, if, if anything we've learned over the past uh, few weeks is that the UK has little or no influence on uh, America, and America doesn't seem particularly inclined to take much notice of us. Well, there are aspects of our relationship that are, that are special, in particular um, our defence capability and theirs. Um, but I think it's more serious than just our special relationship with the United States. It's, it, this is a problem with their entire commitment to the idea of an Atlantic alliance uh, with an international role and to the whole idea of a kind of Western foreign policy committed to uh, to freedom uh, and liberty. And whether that is possible, whether whether or not we've learned that we can't 
do what we thought we could do, uh, whether or not patience has gone out, whatever the reason, and everyone will have different arguments about whether it was right or wrong thing. I do think the relationship is fundamentally changing. And yeah, this is a historic event, uh, Afghanistan, never mind the gate so much um, and these briefings. The whole incident is definitely an indication of the change in America's priority and outlook and the impact that it has on us is profound. Um, what do you make of this? Is this is this sort of um, uh, reality catching up with the the policy decisions made by successive US presidents now, Barack Obama, Donald Trump and now Joe Biden, have been heading this direction already, but we just chose to ignore it by instead talking about Winston Churchill busts and who was holding whose hand? Yeah, well, this blame game is kicking off because the US and the UK were embarrassed at the you know shameful and bungled withdrawal from um, Afghanistan. I think because of our sort of historic closeness with the US, we've just become complacent about the special relationship. It's a really easy phrase. It's very lazy. Um, and I think that we haven't really worked at keeping this relationship. You know, like all relationships, you've got to work at it. I don't think there's been much work gone into um, keeping it close or special. Um, you don't feel that Johnson and Biden are on each other's sort of speed dial. They don't appear to be close. And as you pointed out, Matt, um, Boris Johnson completely failed to influence Biden at all at the emergency discussions last week at the G7 um, kind of, yeah, can we extend? No, absolutely not, he said, and, and just absolutely didn't, didn't take any notice of Boris Johnson. So I think, you know, there's, there's not much special going on in this relationship at the moment. Um, Danny, where should our, uh, who, who, if not America, where should our uh, sort of alliances lie, do you think? Well, I, I still think there's a huge amount of um, power and importance lying in rebuilding a relationship with the United States, although much of that is to do with their own politics and what they want to do to do and to achieve. Um, I don't think much can be achieved unless we try to rebuild political relationships, I would say, particularly on the centre-right, about um, uh, international relationships and some sort of international vision, and we haven't got that at the moment. Um, you know, there have been moments in the in the special relationship where the, where the relationship has been strong, but we've taken a different view, you know, Wilson over Vietnam, or even Reagan and Thatcher over uh, Grenada and over Libya. Uh, you know, th those were very different positions, um, and actually over nuclear weapons negotiation. The United States domestic policy and their foreign policy will not be the same as ours. That doesn't mean the relationship isn't strong or important to both of us. I think it is. Um, but what worries me is a waning in both of our countries, but particularly in the United States, in our vision of what we can achieve at all. Uh, and um, to be quite honest, our relationship doesn't matter so much if the United States has decided that it doesn't really see itself as having a domestic role, an international role beyond its immediate security concerns. Um, and what about you, Emma? Who, who do you think we should be, you know, there's been various talk, you know, Boris Johnson actually did try to uh, ally with uh, France and Germany last week over trying to get um, uh, America to extend the deadline to leave Afghanistan. Should we try and repair some of those relations with your... Yeah, well, obviously, that's really difficult as well with Brexit and with the, you know, the sort of quite a lot, quite a lot going on in Germany, too, at the moment and in France, of course. Um, but I, I do think that we should be trying to rebuild much stronger relations with Europe. Um, absolutely. But also, I think that we need to put some work in with Biden. I don't think the work has gone into it at all. Um, and I think everyone's surprised as well, you know, after the sort of shock of Donald Trump, I think people, I think lots of people just assume that, that 
Biden was going to be more of an internationalist um, and his foreign policy credentials were actually a key plank of his appeal to to be re-elected. Um, and it's been a shock this, hasn't he? Hasn't it? Quite sort of quite how sort of cold eyed and defiant he's been about about um, not not being involved and not helping anyone else. It turns out the guy who was repeatedly uh, argued to bring home troops from Afghanistan was then quite keen to bring home troops from Afghanistan home. when he was uh, when he was turned out to be president. Um, let's move away from Afghanistan and let's um, focus on a, on a domestic story, it's slightly lighter as well. It has to be said on the front of the Daily Mail. If you can tear your eyes away from the enormous picture of Marietta Foster, uh, exclusive government may introduce levy of dis- on disposable uh, nappies to tackle landfill crisis. Parents face new nappy tax. Now we should point out that. Um, uh, Downing Street is desperately trying to hose down this idea and say they're not going to introduce this. But, um, Emma, we've, we've spoken before about your your son on the show. Um, so I'm reeling at you just saying hose down. I've just changed a really spectacular nappy mat and I'm not sure I want the image. Of, <laughs> I really have. And I'm not sure I want the image of hosing down. Uh, but, but, well, let's, uh, let's, uh, good morning, if anyone's eating their breakfast. Uh, what are you doing eating your breakfast this late in the day? Um, but, Emma, what do you make of this? And I suppose it, to some extent this is... What happens when big ideas about meeting abstract climate targets uh, mm. come up against the reality of well, how, how do you actually do that then? How do you stop loads of rubbish going to, to landfill? No, it's really, really important. And I thought the 2015, um, you know, the levy on single use plastics was, I mean, it's been a huge success and it was brilliant. And, you know, that is, that's a different thing. Of course, we need to reduce the, um, our usage of, our wastage of single use plastics. And, you know, that was about people who just couldn't be bothered to take a cloth bag or to take their rucksack using multiple plastic bags. But I think the nappy tax is different. Nappy changing, as we all know, is very time consuming, fairly unpleasant. And, you know, is, is a, it's a big part of being a minus my baby's 13 months. And it's a big part of your life, especially as a single mother. I'm not sure this is fair. I think that actually let's just make nappies more green. It can't be impossible. There's a huge amount of plastic that goes into nappies. And if it were possible, yes, one would all use reusable, you know, reusables. But actually, there's a lot of work involved in reusing cloth nappies, washing them. And actually, that's not great for the environment either, because you have to wash them in a washing machine at 90 degrees or something. I don't think this is fair. I really don't. And I think we need to focus on making nappies recyclable. And I suppose, actually, I mean, we've seen them, you know, uh, coffee cups and that sort of things um, uh, have things that have to contain large amounts of fluid uh, have been made out of uh, things that, can, you know, they, they have transferred into things that are more biodegradable uh, and all that sort of thing. So it just seems as if it's, it's something that's possible. Uh, Danny, I think your, your nappy changing days are slightly uh, longer ago. Yeah, they are, but uh, but you know, but you don't forget that in a hurry. Um, I, 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 agree with, I agree. I agree with the. Uh, actually, you know what? It was a funny thing which everyone always goes on about, like changing the nappies. But I find it when it's your own kids. I I didn't really mind it very much, but um, you know, because they're your own kids, aren't they? Uh, but still, so, the, uh, the 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 truth is that um, I have two problems with this. One is uh, I think that you have to put the taxation emphasis on the businesses that are creating these products to give them incentives to create new products that work. And uh, you know, plastic, for all that we're worried now about its environmental impact, has had an amazing impact on the survival of people in the third world, on uh, the cleanliness of water, all sorts of things that um, you know we don't necessarily have to grapple with uh, in, we- in big Western cities. But but it's made a huge difference. So the first thing is, I'm not sure that uh, 
putting the tax on the end user is the right place to play put the tax the second is that ultimately we are not going to solve the cl- the climate crisis in my view one uh, nappy at a time we are going to solve the climate crisis in the end by big technological developments that enable us to somehow counter the effect of the development that we're making the idea that we are going to persuade all the developing countries in the world or all the uh, first time parents in the world uh, to live less good less good lives after we've led them we just won't be able to do this politically what will happen is that as the growth goes down attention will uh, will go back as it always does away from green issues uh, which uh, you know which we recognize are crucial at moments of affluence uh, and we won't be able to make the uh, the progress we think we're going to make the the emphasis has got to be on a scientific solutions technological solutions and giving the investment and backing to the people developing these on a global scale that is how we're going to get out of this um i really you know i don't think sitting outside prayer a manger with a sign saying (laughs) save the climate or or taxing individual nappies you know each of these can make a contribution to to something at least uh but they won't solve the problem uh somebody's messaged in nappy changing does not take a long time what a lot of nonsense we use when nappies are environmentally the best idea come on young mums help the planet and save your children's future I'm not saying nappy changing takes a long time. I can do it in 10 seconds, you know, well... Oh, yeah, you, could, yeah. you get very but, adept no, at doing it at unusual do, places as well, you know. You, you uh, sp- yeah, yeah, you spend a lot of time changing nappies. What I said was washing, reusing yeah. cloth nappies takes a heck of a lot of time. And look, if we can put rockets into space, we can actually invent recyclable nappies, as you say. Goodness knows the contents of nappies are biodegradable. There's absolutely no reason why they can't be recyclable. Yeah, and and actually, one of those things that we'll probably find is that if you can come up with a solution, that that solution could be used in loads of other places as well. Of course, uh, and then hopefully the uh, the price of it will um, will come down too. Um, just fight back. It's all a sort of similar um, uh, uh, topic. This all to do with going green. Obviously, in Scotland, we've got for the first time the Green Party entering government. Uh, alongside the SNP following their co- uh, their cooperation agreements, not a coalition. But um, Greta Thunberg has already weighed in and said Scotland is not a world leader on climate change. Telling the BBC that uh, she recognised some countries do a bit more than others, but none were coming close to what was, what was needed. And uh, she said some politicians were less worse than others, which we, we won't um, dwell on the grammar, but let's focus on the, the, the point that... Um, is this a big moment, Danny, the Green Party entering power in the UK for the first time? Yes. So first of all, I think it's the right thing for Green Party to do much better than so-called rebellion. They have to then grapple with the real problem, try to make Scotland or elsewhere greener in practical terms that actually um, make some sort of difference. Secondly, I just... You know, Greta Thunberg, I've got great respect for anybody who grapples with the size of big problems and is engaged with things that really matter. So I have respect for her. I just don't agree. I don't think that she's right about how the best, you know, how the we're going to tackle this problem. I think she thinks uh, that um, we're going to tackle this problem in some un- as yet unspecified way involving her in travelling across the sea uh, in a boat. Um, we are not going to solve the problem like that because people aren't going to do that. Uh, the political consent for it will break down. Uh, and uh, and in any case, the climate impact will be felt in other ways. We're going to do it through science and, techn- and technology. So in that way, she is correct that Scotland isn't the leading country. And also, by the way, it won't be the leading country because even if it was an independent country, it'd be massively too small to be a leading country on, on pretty much anything um, and certainly on uh, 
climate because the places where the problem comes are big places like China uh, and India and, um, you know, small countries, China or even Scotland or even England aren't going to solve the problem by ourselves. <laughs> oh, you're going to upset the Scots. Well, we'll be talking more about Scotland just after <laughs> 11 o'clock uh, uh, as well. Emma, your final thought on, on, on Greta and Scotland. Oh, dear. Oh, look, her aims are laudable, absolutely, but I find her wildly irritating. She's, <laughs> what, 17, 18 years old. Of course she has all these, you know spectacularly wonderful ideas but actually to say she's not 100% sure whether she'll dignify the COP26 with her presence you know this kind of thing and passing judgment on politicians who've actually been working on the green agenda for decades it was the final line in this interview with Greta that killed me she said she didn't think she'd been to Scotland before and she was looking forward to seeing the landscapes and meeting the people I mean, I just, yeah. you know, I, I, I do find her, I know it's a cliche, but I find her incredibly irritating. It's like and... a minor royal. Um, <laughs> just, I look forward to meeting the people and admiring the landscape. Emma Wolf and Danny Finks on there. Of course, you read Danny's column every week in The Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we lift the lid on the extraordinary feud between Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, it's been quite the journey for Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Hammond. It has been the privilege of my life to serve as First Minister. But as I said often enough during this referendum campaign, uh, this is a process which is not about me or the SNP or any political party. It's much, much more important. That I stand here today seeking to be the second SNP incumbent of the office of First Minister is testament to how far we have come and a tribute to the extraordinary achievements and leadership of the man I aim to succeed. Alex Salmond transformed the SNP and as First Minister he has made Scotland a better place. So Scotland, uh, I was released on condition that I came to the court today to face the charges against me. That I have now done. So let me say at the outset, I am innocent of any criminality whatsoever. I was not aware of uh, allegations or concerns about 
in a sexually inappropriate behaviour on the part of Alex Hammond. Today, I'm announcing the public launch of a, a new political force, the Alba Party. Under my leadership, seeking to build a supermajority for independence in the Scottish Parliament. I take no pleasure whatsoever in saying this, but I think there are significant questions about the appropriateness of his return to public office, given the concerns that have been raised about his behaviour previously. It's the alliance which has dominated Scottish politics for years. And it's all turned quite nasty since. After seven years as his loyal deputy, Nicola Sturgeon took over from Alex Salmon as leader of the SNP and First Minister after the independence referendum back in 2014, when the parties continued to enjoy dominance in elections despite losing that referendum. But then it all turned in 2019 when Alex Salmon was accused of sexual assaults on 10 women and the cracks in their relationship were laid bare. Uh, what followed was a public interrogation of how uh, Nicola Sturgeon knew, uh, of what, of how much Nicola Sturgeon knew, and whether she'd covered up for her predecessor. He, of course, was cleared uh, by the Scottish courts uh, earlier this year. But the few, uh, earlier last year, the feud reached public heights, new public heights during the 2021 Scottish elections, when Alex Salmond launched a new party, Alba, to run against his old ally uh, in the SNP. Well, now a new book chronicles the whole affair. It's been written by the Times' very own Scottish political editor, Kieran Andrews, and editor of The Courier, David Clegg. And they both join me now. Morning, Kieran. Morning, Matt. How are you doing? I'm very good. I'm very good. Nice to have you this. And uh, morning, David. Good morning. So let's start at the beginning. I feel like there's sort of a beginning, a middle, and then a who knows how it ends. Uh, let's start with the beginning and just describe how close uh, Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond were how they first became uh, so close and how they worked together for such a long time, uh, both in and, and uh, out of uh, power in Scotland. Uh, Kieran, just, just, just paint the picture of how they, they formed this alliance. So when Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon took over running the SNP in 2004, which actually came about when Alex Salmond had realised Nicola Sturgeon, who was running for the leadership herself, was not going to win, and he offered to step in run as leader, have her as uh, his deputy. It was very similar in some ways to the uh, Granita Pact between Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, where they kind of carved up the leadership. And at that point, the SNP was pretty much a fringe party. It didn't look like it had any chance of, of being in government in Scotland, never mind ending up dominating the political landscape uh, north of the border and taking uh, Scotland to within a couple of hundred thousand votes of independence in 2014. And that relationship between Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon was key to that success. It was a very close political bond. It was a very tight team around the two of them who basically everyone had each other's backs. Everyone was working off the same page. And um, it, was, it was incredible unity, which was, the, which was a big part of the driving force um, to take the SNP into power and secure their position uh, kind of, of dominance in Scottish politics. Obviously, that has all fallen apart in the last few years. David, was there a bit of... Was part of the SNP's electoral appeal the sort of yin and yang of uh, Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon, that, that he was a sort of older, gruffer uh, man uh, and she was sort of a younger woman and appealed to a different part of the electorate, the sort of 
uh, particularly the sort of younger voters who who, who came drawn into um, uh, the idea of the SNP and independence. Was that part of their electoral appeal that they both, a bit actually like Tony Blair and um, uh, John Prescott, uh, they they were very different characters, but that but it was they both needed each other initially for for the SNP to to really build that support. Yeah, I think there's some similarities to that Blair Prescott relationship, but actually, I think one of the one of the key differences is the the gender issue because it had been a uh, as the book outlines, it had been a, a long running uh, issue with Alex Salmon that polling, internal research, focus groups all showed that he had uh, a woman problem throughout his career that he was considered aggressive and a little hectoring, and and men were quite supportive of him in Scotland, but he, there was a gap with women. So he had been SNP leader for 10 years previously, from 1990 to 2000, and that had kind of dogged that period. When he came back in 2004, the whole thing really needed a fresh coat of paint, where it was a little bit like Back to the Future, that he was was coming back to to run the party again. So Nicola Sturgeon freshened that up, but also it was quite a shrewd move because she was a young woman. She was from Glasgow, uh, urban, where Labour had traditionally been so strong, Alex Salmond was support base was in the northeast of Scotland, much more rural farming, fishing communities, whereas Nicola Sturgeon was deeply embedded in, in, in the Scotland's biggest city. So there was there was lots of yin and yang there, as you said, and that was certainly part of the electoral appeal. Also, they worked very closely together. And I think the key dynamic and the key ingredient to the success really was that they had they were different in so many ways you know all the things we just described there but also personality wise Alex Salmond is very gregarious he loves socializing he loves boozy lunches Nicola Sturgeon much more introspective when she's not doing politics she wants to be at home reading a good book so they're very different people in almost every way but they shared this ambition this overriding dream of Scotland becoming an independent country and that's what drove their politics uh, more than anything else, it was almost their 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 sole goal, and that engendered a great deal of loyalty, uh, discipline. The I was when I covering the early days, uh, the first term in, uh, of government, the minority government between two thousand and seven and two thousand and eleven. All the political journalists here, all we talked about was how this iron discipline of the SNP. They would never brief against each other. They never fell out in public. All their disputes were kept behind closed doors. And from from that era to now is it's barely recognisable <laughs> because of what's happened. It's exactly the same picture in Westminster too. The You'd go and you'd try and sort of get to know some of the SNP uh, MPs in Westminster, and you know you'd have a lunch with them. They'd say this is all off the record. You think this could all be on the telly, and nobody would have uh, cared. You know, it was all just <laughs> towing the party line uh, with no no real insight at all. Um, so, so Kieran, then, so we 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 get to twenty fourteen. We have the Scottish independence referendum. Alex Salmond resigns uh, or, or, you know, immediately in the wake of that, having not achieved his uh, dream of independence. And Nicola Sturgeon is sort of the only person you know, uh, in the running for the job. Uh, she takes over from her former mentor. Um, did, did, was there a factor in... Did they still get on at that point? Did he resent the fact that he'd had to give it up and hand it over to someone who'd previously you know, been essentially his mentee, Kieran? Their, their relationship had been drifting throughout the independence campaign. It was starting to starting to fracture slightly there, albeit they were still on good terms generally. Alex Salmond 
it was a pretty shrewd move by him to resign when he did the day after the referendum because he then takes all of the blame away from that. There's no recriminations for the person left in post. He hands over to Nicola Sturgeon. So I don't think there was any resentment from him at resigning. But what definitely did happen was after, uh, after Alex Hammond was elected as an MP and moved down to Westminster, Nicola Sturgeon's running the Scottish Government at Holyrood, what definitely happened there was a distance developed, both literally, obviously, between London and Edinburgh, where they're operating, but also um, personally between the two. They didn't speak as much as they might have done. The uh, Nicola Sturgeon, you know, wanted to make her own mark, so again, didn't keep Alex Hammond the loop as much as he might have liked. But what really there were two two instances that really fractured the relationship and. One was purely political, which was after the 2017 snap general election when Alex Salmond lost his seat, he took up a show or his own talk show on RT, the uh, the, the Kremlin-backed um, television station, and that that went down very badly with Nicola Sturgeon, very badly with the mainstream of the SNP, and that was the big political break. Things had been drifting for a while, but that really um, signified. Uh, you know, a, a big step towards the end of their political friendship. And then, of course, when Alex Salmond was accused of sexual misconduct, which obviously the Scots government investigated, that was ruled unlawful by the court of session. Then separately, he was cleared at the high court of, of any criminality, as you said in your introduction. But at that point then, when Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond first discussed those allegations, that was really where the relationship ended, as she... And, you know, as, as she was effectively forced to choose between her, the two the two things that she wants to define her as a politician, which is her Scottish nationalism and the drive for independence and, uh, and her feminism. And so she decided that these allegations should be looked at by the Scottish government without her interference. And Alex Salmond thought that that was, you know, a departure um, of loyalty, which he um, prizes more than anything else in people. And uh, David, this is the, the sort of the, the the substance of your book. It's called Breakup: How Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon Went to War. And we've discussed this before, and uh, Kieran's done his best many times to try and explain the sort of the ins and outs of this extraordinarily complicated series of events of who knew what when, uh, who alleged what, what was investigated, how that was wrongly investigated, who said what about how it was uh, badly investigated. If you can just sort of sum up for us what what do you think was the key the, the sort of the key events uh, in this in the um, clearly Alex Salmond uh, as we've mentioned was cleared uh, in a Scottish court of any uh, criminal wrongdoing but the the relationship between the, the two of them um, suffered irreparably. Yes, so I think the key events actually date back to his time in office when, as we now know. Uh, at least two civil servants had raised informal issues with their line managers about Alex Salmon's behaviour. Nothing was done about that at the time, and the book explores the culture in Alex Salmon's government at that time and how there was failures in the civil service and how they uh, had a duty of care for their staff and a duty to uh, deal with these types of issues when they arose. When what what happens then is, and the timeline is quite um, key to this, is that the Me Too movement 
after the in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein scandal that yeah. erupts towards the end of 2017 at the same time almost that Alex Salmond is taking his TV show on RT. So that relationship breaking down politically is occurring at the same time that women come forward again to the Scottish government and raise issues about Alex Salmond's alleged behaviour. Now, the Scottish government has changed its procedures in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein scandal and the Me Too movement and the whole drive for social change that was going on at that time, as, as we all remember, to allow retrospective investigation of uh, ministers or first ministers. And that process begins without Nicola Sturgeon's knowledge. But the Scottish government begins to investigate these two, the complaints from two women. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon, in both Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon's account of this, learns of this from Alex Salmond in a meeting in their house, in, or sorry, I should say, in a meeting in Nicola Sturgeon's house in April 2018. He asks her to intervene. She refuses. During that meeting, he also tells her that one of these investigations had been dealt with informally at the time. He had apologised to the woman involved and he gives Nicola Sturgeon for the first time his account of what happened. And she feels that even by his own account of what happened, which was subsequently um, revealed in the criminal court case, that his behaviour was not appropriate for a First Minister, which is why in your package there you heard her talking about what has been revealed, suggests there's real questions about his fit for public, whether he's fit for public office now or not. So the trust is broken. In her view, she, the trust that she had in him is broken because of that. In his view, the trust that he had in her is broken because he puts nothing higher than loyalty and he feels that she is being disloyal by not backing him in this situation and intervening. What we subsequently learn is that the Scottish government make an absolute cock-up of the investigation. Uh, it's uh, it's kicked out of the court of session in the most humiliating of fashion, costs the Scottish taxpayer more than half a million pounds. Uh, and we have a criminal investigation going on uh, simultaneously, which, as we know, ultimately leads to his acquittal on all charges, which leaves us now with a situation that officially those two Scottish government, the two the two the complaints to the Scottish government by the two women are still officially on the books of the Scottish government because what the court decided was not that the complaints had no merit, but the investigation was procedurally unfair. So that's the picture and how they sort of, they came from being uh, great allies to how uh, it's all fallen apart, which you, you detail um, uh, in your book. Kevin, for the last few minutes we have, let's just reflect on what this means now uh, going forwards, um, uh, Nicola Sturgeon was committed to laying out a timetable uh, for a second independence referendum within 100 days of the uh, elections uh, back in May. Where, where are we on that? Um, what are the prospects of a second independence referendum? And what impact does that her feud with Alex Salmond have on the prospects of, of her winning that? Well, we're likely to find out more about the timetable probably next week from Nicola Sturgeon as she weighs out her programme for government. And that's been delayed by a week whilst she, um, whilst the Scottish Greens actually joined the Scottish Government, which just as a, a kind of segue briefly into been talking about uh, politicians in the circuits, actually Lorna Slater 
one of the Scottish Greens co-leaders who is about to become a minister is actually a trapeze artist as well. So we, we have the circus coming to Holyrood quite literally in some ways. Um, we will learn more. Nicola Sturgeon has committed to holding a second independence referendum by the end of 2023. At the moment, it's difficult to see the path for that. Powers over the constitution are reserved to Westminster. The UK government says it will not agree to a second independence referendum. So the question is, will Nicola Sturgeon, when will Nicola Sturgeon try and bring her own legislation through the Scottish Parliament? Will it make it to the floor of the Scottish Parliament? Will it pass the Scottish Parliament, which is almost certainly a yes, given there's a pretty big pro-independence majority? But then, will it end up being challenged in court? And would it survive any sort of court challenge? So it's a and that seems unlikely that um, any Holyrood legislation for a second independence referendum would survive a court challenge, certainly according to the general assessment of, um, of most legal experts. So the path for a second independence referendum is difficult for Nicola Sturgeon. Meanwhile, she has Alex Salmond and his new Alaba party nipping at her heels, saying the SNP is dragging its feet and not being... Uh, you know, not being robust enough, not being uh, hard enough and push for a second independence referendum. Now, if it was to get to a campaign, it would be really interesting to see how or if, probably not, uh, the two of them could work together. But it might not be a bad thing for the Yes campaign to have a, a second almost splinter group to um, appeal to a certain section of, um, of Scottish nationalists that, uh, that Nicola Sturgeon would probably not be wanting to speak directly to very often as she tries to woo kind of middle Scotland and those floating soft no voters from, from 2014. So it's difficult to do path the referendum, but if it comes to it, having two distinct campaigns, a little bit like during the 2016 Brexit referendum, might not be a bad thing for the independence campaign. I suppose, yeah, it's a bit like how you had the, the sort of official vote leave campaign in, in the uh, Brexit vote. But then you had uh, what they called leave.eu, the sort of Nigel Farage, Alan Banks, uh, paramilitary wing of uh, of Brexit, where they, yeah, they went off and did their own thing and appealed to a slightly different uh, uh, group of people. Um, David, does it... Um... I just wonder whether, because we've seen sort of support for independence sort of uh, bob up and down, um, does it make a difference, part of the SNP's appeal, or at least they tried to make this appeal, um, to uh, voters in Scotland, was they were different. They weren't like the Tories in London or the tired old Labour Party. They were they were different. And actually, does just the swirl of allegations and sleaze and infighting and all that sort of thing, is there a risk that they end up being just like the the rest of them, if you like, they, they they are just another bunch of politicians with all the all the foibles that that come with that. And does that affect their ability to sell uh, an independent Scotland as this sort of great shiny new future that they would be part of? If the laws of political gravity were to hold, that argument would have a lot of logic. And the SNP certainly have had their fair share of scandals in recent years. I think, however, the most interesting and marked thing about the last few years in Scottish politics as there's a constant suggestion in the commentary and from political observers like myself like at some point some of this must touch Nicola Sturgeon you know there was the salmon issue the tired domestic record uh, other 
other scandals which didn't get the the column inches that the Alex Salmon situation did, but things that were not particularly uh, didn't look particularly good for the SNP. And she always comes out smelling of roses. Her popularity remains very strong. You know, within uh, within six or seven weeks of a committee inquiry which found uh, against her on, on this issue, uh, and that uh, had included weeks of. Uh, wall-to-wall media coverage suggesting she had acted improperly or immorally in, in some of her or some of her actions around this issue and in which Alex Salmond the person the politician most closely associated with her had made all kinds of allegations about her government and the the, the institutions of the country she was leading after all that she won a she, she won a, <laughs> another massive election victory which is just short of a majority so I think I think the the issue there is the opposition need to get their act together. My my personal view on this is the defining the defining issue of Scottish politics is at uh, the minute is is that nobody else looks like they would do a credible job. So the SNP will remain dominant uh, until that changes. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from.